everyone, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. In my house, I have to be very careful when I use the phrase, I promise. Because my kids hear that phrase, even when I don't say it, they hear it as an absolute guarantee. And so I, I use it very sparingly and very carefully, only when I know for certain that something will happen. I don't say, yeah, yeah, I promise we'll, we'll get, you know, we'll go out, we'll go out after Taekwondo and get some culvers. Well, something might happen and I can't keep that promise and then I have broken hearts that say, you promised! And we want, I want my kids to know and, and, and be able to trust my words. And so I use that phrase, I promise, very sparingly and very carefully of things that I know they can be sure of. Now this whole passage that we've just looked at is in the book of Hebrews because the author had previously quoted Psalm 110 verse 4 which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which Jesus Himself quotes that psalm and applies it to Himself and says, This was talking about Me. But as soon as the author of Hebrews brought it up, he then leaped into a tangent that lasted 16 verses, or two or three sermons here at least, about how hard it might be for them to understand what he was going to say about Melchizedek. And how important it is for believers to continue to grow on to maturity as they respond to the grace that God gives to us through His Word. But then as we saw last week, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, even though it's going to be hard to understand, I think you can handle it. I think we can move on to this. I think you're ready for us to talk about Melchizedek. And so I say to you the same thing. I think we, church, we are ready to talk about Melchizedek. And so we will next week. Okay. Before we get to that, we have to deal with the first part of Psalm 110, verse 4, about the Lord swearing and not changing His mind. Because we need to see why God swears an oath. I joked with Randy over text that my rejected sermon title for this week was The God Who Swears. Figured that would catch some people's attention. But God, in these verses, it talks about how He swears an oath. 
We want to see why he does that in order to understand the basis of our security in this life and in the life to come. Because God takes that phrase, I promise, he takes it very, very seriously. And it is the foundation, the firm foundation of our security that we have in Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see in these verses is that God wants us to feel secure. God wants us to feel secure. And that's an important word, feel secure, that we'll get to in a moment. So let's look again at Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The author of Hebrews pauses here to consider why does God swear? The answer we see is that God speaks this way because he wants his people, he wants us to feel secure. Verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly, He wanted to convince us to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. He wants us to be persuaded. He wants us to be confident that what He said will be true. He doesn't just give us a promise and then walk away and say, it's up to you whether you believe it or not. No skin off my back. No, it actually matters very much to God that we take him at his word, not because he's insecure and and needs us to believe him. Have you ever been in that situation where you're trying to convince somebody of something that you're trying to convince them you're telling the truth? Like, no, I really saw a zebra out on on Colorado Avenue. They didn't, but you know, if you were trying to convince somebody of something and they just didn't believe you, and that feeling of like, I really need you to believe me. That's not why God is going to great lengths here to persuade us. He's not insecure. God wants to convince us because He loves us and He wants what's best for us. And what He's trying to convince us of is the truth that secures us and gives us peace and wholeness. And so He guarantees His promise with an oath, which might seem odd for God to swear an oath. But even if it seems odd, it's not unprecedented. It's happened before. The author looks back on the history of God's many promises, and he zeroes in on one promise made to Abraham at the time when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which was an unthinkable request for any parent, for any person. But even more unthinkable because all of God's promises to Abraham, God had said they were going to be fulfilled through Isaac. It was through Isaac that I will make you a great nation. It's through Isaac that you will overcome the gates of your enemies. It is through Isaac that I will bless the nations. It is through Isaac that you will inherit the land. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to kill Isaac. And here's how Abraham responded in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the very act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And the reason Abraham did that is because he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac back from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Because just as Abraham was about to strike the fatal blow, the Lord stopped Abraham from making the sacrifice. So once Abraham had showed his intention to fully trust God, no matter how insane or difficult God's demands were, Here's how God responded in Genesis 22, 16-18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The author of Hebrews brings this story up because he wonders, how can God Swear an oath. Verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Swearing an oath is calling upon a greater power, a greater authority to intervene and hold you accountable for what you're saying. Which is why we have in in our country the notion of, of putting your hand on the Bible when you're about to testify in a court or take public office because you're calling upon a higher power, God to judge you and to judge your words and hold you accountable. But what greater authority can God call on? I hereby swear by me. So help me, me, is what God is saying. In verse 13 and 14, when God made a promise, he had no one greater to swear by, so he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So what's the point? Why does any of this matter other than a little theological curiosity? The point, people of God, is that God continues to make promises, promises to me and to you. And the promise we're about to look at about Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek is actually relevant to us today. But for now, what we need to see is that God goes through all this rigmarole, this, uh, this committing himself in the strongest human language possible because he wants us to feel secure. God is not in the business of playing hard to get, of making us guess what his mood and his intentions are, of giving us mixed signals. In Jeremiah 29, speaking to God's people when they were facing an uncertain future, when they were in exile, had been punished by God and didn't know what God's intentions were or had forgotten what God had promised them. He said, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God spoke those words to his people in exile because he wanted them to feel secure in what was ahead. God's promises are true. His intentions are good. And that is enough to make us secure. But it's not always enough to make us feel secure. Like every parent who has tried to teach a child to ride a bike without training wheels. I've done this three times where you hold on to the back of the seat you, know, you don't want to hold them because that's distracting and you can't hold up front and you're holding the back and realizing that you really need to practice moving faster because you can't keep up with the bike at a certain point. But you're holding the back of the seat to keep them from falling over. Your intentions are good and you've got them and they're not going to fall. But they don't feel that. And I think every, all three of my kids said, no, daddy, hold up here where I can see it. Put your hand on my shoulder so I can feel it. They're no more secure when I do that than when I hold the back of the bike. But they wanted to feel that security. And because I want them to feel safe and secure, I hold up front where they can see it. And I let them know that I'm there. I confirm it. That's what God is doing. He wants your heart to rest easy. He doesn't want you living in fear and doubt and questioning and wondering and uncertainty. He wants you to feel secure. And so he uses the strongest human language possible to confirm his promise with an oath. 
Which gives us the power to do what Abraham did in verse 15. Thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. If you go to one of the community groups uh, that meets today, um, we're going to get into that question a little bit more. When did Abraham receive the promise? Not in his life. Not at all. In fact, the author of Hebrews later says, Abraham died not receiving the promise. But in Christ, it receives fulfillment. But Abraham waited patiently until he received it. God calls us to find security in the promise, not in the present. In what's coming, not in present circumstances. Not where we're at, but where God has promised to take us. And that gives us the power to be patient. To not give up what God has called us to do today. To not give up the hard work of faithfulness and obedience. To not turn aside towards a detour or a distraction. But instead, noting how committed God is to what He's promised you. To feel secure in those promises and to wait patiently for their fulfillment. But what is the promise? What is the promise that God has given to make us feel secure? Well, we see also in these verses that our security comes from what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done. That's where this idea of Melchizedek comes in. Remember Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Here's what He has sworn. Here's the promise. Speaking to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The promise is that Jesus is the priest that brings us to God. Jesus brings us back to God. The author of Hebrews describes it this way in verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's two nautical uh, terms, two boat terms in those verses. The first one's probably obvious. Verse 19, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We all need an anchor in life. Everyone pursues an anchor. Something that secures you, that helps you weather the storm, that keeps you from drifting away. And for many people, their anchor might be, uh, the thing they look to for stability might be their identity, their reputation, their family, their career, their kids, some cause they believe in, some goal they are pursuing. Everything in their life clings to that anchor and says, this will keep me safe. This will help me weather the storms of life. And the problem is, those anchors don't hold. They cannot endure the storms of life. Mostly because they're not anchored to something solid. I speak to people who've been on boats. I'm in Florida. How many of you have tried to throw an anchor into a sandbar? It doesn't work. And nothing challenges the harmony of my marriage like being on a boat with my wife and going to the sandbar. And it's my job to get us anchored. You can't anchor in sand. But that's where the second nautical term comes in. The one that might have slipped past our notice in verse 20. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's one of the most beautiful things that I've learned in my study of Hebrews for these sermons. That word forerunner, when I read it, I just picture somebody who runs up ahead. Somebody who goes there first and gets things ready for you. 
Oh, Jesus is my forerunner. He's the one who's gone first. But actually, in, in the Greek world, where Hebrews was being written, if you're talking about boats and you speak of a forerunner, you're talking about something else. Because most Greek harbors were blocked by sandbars. We know all about sandbars here if you've been in the Treasure Coast very long. The harbors were blocked by a sandbar that, that you couldn't get past during low tide. And if you are coming in, if you are fleeing for refuge, as the author of Hebrews says, you're fleeing to the harbor for refuge, and the sandbar blocks your entrance, and you're a big shipping vessel, and you can't get past that sandbar into safety, you've got nowhere to drop anchor, and you are vulnerable. And when the storm comes in, you are vulnerable. But what you would do is you would get a smaller boat, one that can go right over that sandbar, and you put your anchor in the boat, and that little boat, is your, it's called a forerunner. And it goes past the sandbar and it carries your anchor into the harbor. It finds solid anchorage and it drops anchor. And even though you're still out there in the turbulent seas, you are safely, solidly anchored because you had a forerunner who went before you and made you secure. And the author of Hebrews, Jesus says, is a forerunner. We look at where he takes our anchor in verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our forerunner takes our anchor, mixing metaphors, behind the curtain. And some of you know right away what that means. And some of you are waiting for the explanation. The, the curtain is that part of the temple that separates sinful humanity from a holy God. It was the part of the curtain that reminded us of Eden because the moment Adam and Eve chose their own way over God's way, they were banished from the garden and two giant cherubim with flaming swords blocked their return to the presence of God. And when God designed the temple, He said, you make this veil, this curtain that keeps people away from the holy place where I keep my presence. And you put on that curtain two giant cherubim with flaming swords to remind you that you are separated from me, that your sin cuts you off, that you have no access to the peace and security and warm embrace of the God who made you, and that that separation continues until the day you die and are eternally separated. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the root of all our insecurity. That's the root of all our fear. That's the root of all our trouble, that there is a curtain between us and God. And Jesus, in dying and rising again, goes past the curtain and takes us into the presence of God. And what He does, according to these verses in Hebrews, is He takes our anchor behind the curtain and gives us solid anchorage, gives us security back in the presence of God. Though we are not yet fully there, though our ship is still tossed by the storms, we are anchored there behind the curtain in the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We couldn't do it ourselves, but our forerunner went there for us. And so our security comes from nothing that we have done or can do or will do. Our security comes from what Jesus has done. And remember, there's a very practical, personal point to all this. Because Hebrews was not being written as, a, as an obscure theological treatise that some grad student was doing. 
Hebrews was not some exercise in abstract thought. Hebrews was a letter written to people in crisis. People struggling, weary of holding on to a faith that was being rewarded with persecution, with abuse, with pain. People wondering, have we picked the wrong side? People wondering, have we been wrong? Has God himself given up on us? Should we change course and seek safe harbor somewhere else? And I think we struggle with the same questions when we feel like we're in the thick of battle. When we look in the mirror and hate the person that we see. Or we love somebody with a heartbreaking health issue. Or we work tirelessly to keep a family together that seems determined to to break apart. Or we find that walking by faith puts us out of step with everyone around us and has consequences. Or we see that the path of discipleship demands more than we realized. Or we recognize that our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for their faith. And we can't help but think that that same experience is headed our way sooner rather than later. It is no easy thing to follow Jesus. So it's no wonder that Scripture in this passage uses imagery of fleeing for refuge. Verse 18, We who have fled for refuge, you picture that ship in the midst of the storm, fleeing for refuge into the harbor. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. How do we fight these battles that we face every day? The author of Hebrews says we fight them by holding tight to hope. Which sounds like a completely wishy-washy and inadequate way of doing things, but only if we misunderstand the word hope. In the Bible, hope is not merely wishing for something to be true. Hope is looking forward to what God has said will be true. Faith looks back at what God has done and lives in light of that. Hope looks forward to what God will do and lives in light of that. So for us to hold fast to hope means that we remain convinced. We remain secure that what God has promised us will be true. That Jesus has already conquered evil and sin and death by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And so whatever the world, the flesh, or the devil tries to use to distract us, disorient us, or dishearten us, it's already been defeated by what Jesus has done. That's the promise. That's why God goes so to such great lengths to convince us and make us feel secure in that promise. Verse 18, by two unchangeable things by which it's impossible for God to lie. Number one, He made the promise, and God does not lie. But number two, he doubled down and swore an oath on the promise that Jesus is our priest and takes our anchor into his presence and we cannot be separated from him. Two two assurances of that. Therefore, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The promise is that our refuge, our anchor, our Savior will not fail us. It may feel like we're in the middle of a fierce storm, And the future seems uncertain. We may wonder, how could any good come of this? How could any good come of what's going on in the world? How can any good come of what's going on in my life? How can any good come of me? If God has not given up, surely he's about to. But the promise, child of God, is that your anchor is already fixed 
It's already set. It's already there. Right where you need to be. The child, the child of God leans on the promise that many of you have probably sang a hundred times and not thought that it comes back to this verse. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds. Where does my anchor hold? Within the veil. Behind the curtain. In the presence of God, I am anchored, but only because I have a priest, a forerunner, who goes on before me and sets my anchor until the day when I myself am brought there. But I am less happy, but no less secure, as we sang already, because his promises are yes and amen and never were forfeited yet. Yes, I to the end shall be sure just as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. So in all things, people of God, victory does not come from you being strong enough, you doing enough, you having good luck, you getting that right marriage hack, that perfect parenting strategy, that right investment technique, or aligning with the proper political party. Victory for God's people, the gospel reminds us, is that we don't need to win the victory because God already has. We don't need to win the victory over our troubles because God has already done that. And so as 1 John 5 tells us, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. But how do we overcome the world? Faith. Trusting God. Clinging to what He has said is true. Holding fast to that. Victory on our part is trusting God. Resting in secure and resting secure in what he has already done and what he has promised to finish. So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, listen to these familiar verses and notice what they say about the way we win the victory. Romans 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. The Greek is hyper conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, how do we conquer? How do the people of God conquer? Simply this, by being inseparable from the love of God. I'm sure that neither life nor death, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor anything else in all creation can shake my anchor loose. Nothing can cut my anchor off. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the promise that secures you. That's the promise that gives victory. And that's the promise of which the Lord wants you to feel its truth. So much so that he would condescend to our level and swear an oath. The victory is in that God has sworn and will not change his mind. You have a priest who anchors you behind the veil, behind the curtain, in the presence of God. And he gives us the sacrament. He gives us the Lord's Supper to remind us of that promise and to call us to respond to that promise. So I want you to consider that as our, as our elders come forward to assist us and serve us in the Lord's Supper. Consider that the Lord's Supper is a reminder. A reminder of the promise that secures us. We have here reminders of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That He went behind the veil. He was the sacrifice. That's the only reason you have a secure anchor. 
That's the only reason you have any security in life. Because of what Jesus has done in dying and rising again. And so as you take, as you respond in taking the bread and the cup, don't do that lightly. Because to take the bread to drink from the cup is, a, is an expression of faith. It's an expression that says, this is my anchor. Not my performance, not my doctrine, not my portfolio, not my family, not my reputation. This is my anchor that Jesus has died and has gone beyond the curtain as a sacrifice and placed my anchor there. If that's not true of you, then let the cup, let the bread, let them pass by. Don't confess with your actions what is not true in your heart, but make this a time to consider, to prayerfully consider what is your anchor and will it hold? Spoiler alert, it will not. Only Christ anchors us rightly and securely. If you are are one who has sinned, who has been weak, who has doubted, who has stumbled, who has had difficulty, who has failed to be all that God calls you to be this week. Scripture says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Come to the table. Receive and be blessed by the grace of God. But if in your sin, you feel no remorse, if in your sin you don't grieve it, but celebrate it or ignore it or belittle it, I warn you not to take this until you have repented and come before God with a grieving heart over your wrong and recognize that you needed Christ to die for your sins. If you are not a member of this church, you are still welcome here. If you have joined the church of Jesus Christ and submitted to Him and been baptized in His name, you are His child and you are welcome to the sign and seal of His promise to you. So to all who are weary, all who are weak, all who are heavy burdened by sin and have found their rest in Jesus Christ, take and eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your promise, not only your promises to us, but the way in which you affirm them, remind us of them, even giving us this regular reminder that we may not forget that we may feel secure, that we may feel our Father's hand on our shoulder, keeping us steady. You are here, you are present. We need that reminder. May our hearts be blessed by this. May we feed in faith and be nourished in our souls by your body and your blood today. We pray in the name of the Savior who died for us.